0: Pastor and author Warren Wearsby provided us with ten basic statements about ministry. They are the foundation of ministry is character. The, nation, the nature of ministry is service. The motive For ministry is love. The measure of ministry is sacrifice. The authority of ministry is submission. The purpose of ministry is the glory of God. The tools of ministry are the word and prayer. The privilege of ministry is growth. The power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. And then finally the model for ministry is Jesus Christ. Many of the major problems in the church are the result of unqualified or disqualified leadership. Too often, the Bible is ignored, it's glossed over, and men who should never be appointed to the office of elder get appointed. They may not have the necessary gifts, training, theological and biblical fitness, availability, spiritual maturity, reputation, or past history of ministry faithfulness. Sometimes an elder may be chosen because he's a nice guy. Um, Maybe he's a successful businessman. Or let's say he faithfully serves the church. Maybe he has a nice family. Or maybe he just gives a lot of money to the church. Churches must look at the scriptures and obey what the Word of God says, and what Jesus requires of those who are under shepherds of the church. Unqualified or disqualified elders put Jesus' bride, the church, which he purchased with his own blood in peril. If a formerly qualified, formerly qualified elder disqualifies himself but yet stays in that position, he's sinning. Christ is dishonored, and in that case the church is harmed. James directly stated in the epistle, therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let us pray. I thank you, Lord, that we can look into your word this morning. And Lord, I would ask that our hearts and minds would be open and receptive for what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've turned my Bible to uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. You're welcome to put your Bible there if you wish. And I'll be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Whatever version you have, uh, I'm sure you'd be able to follow along. Qualifications for overseers, term interchangeably used for elder, pastor. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As we look into the Word today, we should focus on the characteristics, call, commitment, and commission to ministry. First, there are the characteristics of an elder pastor. Paul lists 15 characteristics. I, you know, I could have done better on my own, but I'll take what Paul said. First, above reproach. Being above reproach literally means pertinent to what cannot be criticized. Above criticism. It's important so a person who's an elder will not have their legitimacy questioned, and if possible, elders should by all means avoid the appearance of evil and getting into questionable situations. Then second, faithful to his wife. An elder must be a one-woman man. He must be completely committed to his wife. Now that doesn't mean if somebody were divorced that they're disqualified from being an elder. What it means is if that person is currently married, that person is faithful to the person that they are married to. Third is self-controlled. The elder must be able to control himself. If he cannot lead himself, then how can he lead the church of God? Fourth is live wisely. If leaders are living wisely, then they'll be a good example to their flock. A person who is living wisely can be trusted. Trusted to make wise decisions for the people that they lead. Very important next one. I mean, they're all important, but the elder must have a good reputation in and outside the church. Not only should an elder have a good reputation in the church, but also in the community. A leader should be a person of good character wherever they are. An elder also enjoys guests in their home, in his home. This person sees the value of hospitality. An elder should not be a hermit. Then an elder should be able to teach. The ability to teach God's word accurately is very important for every elder. An elder will face a higher judgment because of their teaching. that elder stands before the throne of grace of Jesus Christ. If the leaders of the church can't teach, the whole church will be weak theologically and spiritually. The elder cannot be a heavy drinker. Now it doesn't say the elder cannot have a touch of wine on occasion, but not a drunk. Someone who's addicted to alcohol should not be leading the church. An elder should not be violent. A violent person may tend to explode under pressure. An elder needs to be gentle. Gentleness is the opposite of violent. An elder should be approachable and kind to the people that he leads, not quarrelsome not a fighter. If a person loves to fight, that person should not be an elder. The elder often has the role of peacemaker and should never be the one starting the conflict. Not greedy. Greedy pastors and elders have made Christianity look bad to a lost world. An elder has to love God more than they love money. An elder must also manage their family well. Paul makes a great point that if one cannot manage their own family, then how can that person manage the church? Fourteen is his children respect and obey him. The elder must do all his power to parent his children well. Now that doesn't ever mean that kids are not gonna act up because uh, many of us who've had kids we know they don't do everything the way we like all the time. But it's a general idea of managing the household well. Very, very critical, the final one, but again they're all critical. Not a new believer. Giving a new believer leadership too soon can lead that person to be proud. A person may be very gifted But if his character does not grow in proportion to his giftedness, that could lead to pride and ultimately to a fall. An elder has to be willing to, before they become an elder, learn and study and grow in the process to when the other elders feel like they're ready to be affirmed as an elder. When Paul begins his list of elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Being an elder is a lot more than just a title or a status symbol. It's not about the ability to... Be in the know about all the stuff going on in the church. Or it's not about just the power to make decisions over other people. Being an elder must be a position of servant leadership. The elder qualifications are are read in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And then Brother uh, Tim read out of Titus. Um, And the qualifications include not only character qualities, necessary giftedness and training, but also a consistent pattern of ministry, past ministry service. The terms elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd are used interchangeably to describe the same office. The pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are written to church leaders to know what Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, requires of them. In Acts 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to meet him at Miletus. He reminds them of his example and exhorts them in following his example that he set in shepherding God's flock. It's obvious that Paul wrote these words, discipling uh, people in the word of God, because he was concerned about solid teaching and that adequate discipleship goes on. And this matches up with what Paul wrote in the pastoral epistles as well. As Paul begins the elder qualifications in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, he says, a man must be, certain things before being appointed to be an elder. The Greek verb tense Paul uses means must be right now and continue to be. The need of a man being everything an elder must be and must do before being made an elder is even clearer. In Titus 1.6 where Paul writes, if any man is, he uses the same Greek verb tense and doesn't say, if any elder is, but any man who is being considered for the office must meet these requirements. He must be. This is why a person must never be appointed to an elder office as a new believer or until they're ready and had adequate training. Being appointed as an elder does not magically make somebody something that they're not at that point in time, and that's why Paul is specifically saying they need to be in that particular uh, state before being appointed. A man must demonstrate a pattern of faithfulness in managing his home, parenting his children until they're grown have a good reputation at work and also a good reputation inside and outside the church he must be above reproach so that no accusation of ungodliness can ever come before him this doesn't mean elders never sin the last time I checked everyone in this room is human so we all Blow it at times. But what this refers to is a pattern of life. What is a man's life characterized by? We've all had our bad moments. And I've had a few of mine, you know, we all had them. And I would not want to ever be judged by the worst day I've had, let's say in the month or the year or or whenever. When the elder qualified man fails, he repents, and that's key, repents and will confess before God his sin quickly and strives to do immediately better after those bad moments, those moments being exceptions in his life rather than the norm. There may be times when that elder isn't teaching as much as he should be or discipling as much as he should be or practicing hospitality as much as usual. Or maybe he's not even doing it at all at that point in time. But what we're looking at is the overarching pattern of that elder's life. He must meet those qualifications in the normal pattern, but is not expected to be perfect. I'll say that again. He is not expected to be perfect. First, we saw the characteristics of an elder pastor. Next is the call of the elder pastor. The pastoral calling is inherently theological. Now given the fact that the pastor is to be the teacher of the word of God and the teacher of the gospel, it cannot be otherwise. This emphasis is perhaps most apparent in Paul's letters to Timothy. In these letters, Paul affirms Timothy's role as a theologian affirming that all of Timothy's fellow pastors are to share the same calling. Paul encourages Timothy concerning his reading, teaching, preaching, and study of Scripture. All of this is essentially theological, and is made clear when Paul commands Timothy to, and I quote, retain the standard of sound words, Which you have heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Timothy is to be a teacher of others who will also teach. And Paul goes on, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As Paul completes his second letter to Timothy, he commands Timothy to preach the word. But specifically, he says that some of these things can be hard. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, but do it with great patience and instruction. Why? Why is that? For the time will come when they, talking about the people, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. I praise God every day for CVBC because that does not happen here at this church. Paul makes it clear the pastoral theologian must be able to defend the faith even as he identifies false teachings and makes correction by the word of God. There is no more of a pastoral calling than this guard the flock of God for the sake of God's truth. This requires on the part of the pastor elder, intense and self-conscious theological thinking, study, and consideration. Sometimes there's the the misnomer out there, wow, I wish I could be a pastor, I mean, because all he does is like work one day a week on Sunday. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you folks, there's a lot more to it than that. Paul makes it clear about all this theological thinking and study and all that. Uh, In writing to Titus when he defines the duty of the overseer or pastor as one is holding fast a faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. There is no problem the pastor will will encounter in counseling that is not specifically theological in character. There is no major question in ministry that does not come with deep theological dimensions and the need for careful, careful theological application. The task of leading, of feeding, and guiding the congregation is as theological as any vocation imaginable. Evangelism is a theological calling as well, for the very act of sharing the gospel is a theological argument presented with the goal of seeing a sinner come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to be a faithful evangelist, the pastor must first understand the gospel and then understand the nature of the evangelist calling. Now, we're not all called to be evangelists, like I think of Reverend Billy Graham comes to mind, the late one and the current one. Um, Franklin is the current one. Um, But we are all called uh, by what Brother Glenn read the Great Commission uh, early on, We're all called to share our faith in Jesus with others. It's not our job to beat somebody over the head and make them accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's our job, all of us, to share. Today's pastors are often pulled in many directions, and the theological vocation is often lost in the pressing concerns of a ministry. The pastorate has been reconceived as something other than what Paul intended for Timothy. Many believe that the pastoral ministry is best understood as a helping profession. As such, the pastor is seen as having a therapeutic role in which theology is often seen more as a problem than a solution. Today's pastors must recover and reclaim the pastoral call and calling as inherently and cheerfully, for that matter, theological. Otherwise, pastors will be nothing more than communicators, counselors, and managers of congregations that have been empty of the gospel and of biblical truth. This kind of pastoral ministry is a calling. Certainly all Christians are called to serve the cause of Christ. God, however, calls certain persons to serve the church as pastors and in other places in ministry. Again, Paul writes to Timothy that if a man aspires to be a pastor... It is a fine work that he aspires to do. Okay, so this is all cool kind of cognitive head stuff. But how do you know that God is calling you? Sometimes that can be a tough question. First, there's the inward call. Through the Spirit, God speaks to those persons he has called to serve as pastors and ministers in a church. The great reformer Martin Luther described this inward call as God's voice heard by faith. Those whom God has called know this call by a sense of leading, purpose, and growing commitment. The sense of compulsion should prompt the believer to consider whether God may be calling him to ministry. Has God gifted you with the fervent desire to preach? He has equipped you with the gifts necessary. Has he equipped you with the gifts gifts necessary for ministry? Do you love God's word and feel called to teach. Well, Pastor Luke's old buddy, Charles Spurgeon, warned (laughs) those who sought his counsel not to preach if they could help it. But, Spurgeon continued, if he cannot help it and he must preach or die, then he Is demand. That sense of urgent commission is one of the central marks of an authentic call. Charles Spurgeon identified the first sign of God's call to the ministry as an intense, all-absorbing desire to the work. Those called by God sense a growing compulsion to preach and teach the word and to minister to the people of God. Second, I talked about the internal call. There's the external call. God uses the congregation, the congregation, to call out the called to ministry. The congregation must evaluate and affirm the calling and gifts of the believer who feels called to the ministry. As a family of faith, the congregation should recognize and celebrate the gifts of ministry given to its members, and then also take responsibility to encourage those whom God has called to respond to that call call with joy and with submission. Well, that's what we're doing here today, folks. I told you I'd explain it, and I'll explain it a little more. These days, many persons think of careers rather than callings. The biblical challenge to consider your call should be extended from the call to salvation, which most of us here today have had, to the call of ministry. John Newton, famous for writing Amazing Grace, once remarked that none but he who made the world can make an elder pastor of the gospel. Only God can call a true minister, and only he can grant the elder pastor the necessary gifts for service. The great promise of Scripture is that God does call ministers and presents these servants As gifts to the church. Paul makes it clear in Romans 12, too the will of God is good, worthy of eager acceptance, and perfect. Those called by God to preach will be given a desire to preach, as well as the gifts of preaching. Beyond this, the God called preacher will feel the same compulsion as the great apostle who said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. We saw the characteristics and the call of the elder pastor. Third is the commitment of the elder pastor. Well, I can't say it better myself, so I'm going to take what Paul said and uh, give you 12 points here from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Paul sums it all up. These are 12 commitments that every pastor needs to make. And when I say these today, I'm directing these specifically at Pastor Luke and at Pastor Justin. A pastor will not shrink back from suffering for the gospel. He will carry a cross just as he calls others to do the same. In other words, leading by an example. A pastor will preach boldly. He will be clear in the face of fear. A pastor will not deceive no ulterior motives, no tricks, no gimmicks, just plain old truth. Sometimes this is a hard one, this next one. A pastor will work to please God, not men. The most important audience is up there, not out there. A pastor will not flatter. Encourage? Yes. Point out evidences of grace? Yes, I hope so. But no backslapping to get what he wants. A pastor will not be greedy for selfish gain. He must not be in this for the money. A pastor will not seek his own glory. It's not about him. It's about Jesus Christ. A pastor will be gentle like a mother. Let's, talk, let's try tenderness before toughness. A pastor will share his own self. The pastor must freely give two things to everyone. First and most importantly is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, he must give himself. A pastor will work hard. Now, that is not an excuse to neglect one's family. But sometimes, there has to be some sacrifice. But it's still important that he gets plenty of rest. A pastor will pursue personal holiness. It's hard to take anyone somewhere we have not been ourselves. A pastor will exhort like a father. And if you don't know what the word exhort means, that just means kind of like call to action, call people to action, encourage. The preacher is not a hothead, but he's not a softy either. He's not trying to make everyone mad, but he's not trying to make everyone happy either. We saw the characteristics, the call, and the commitment to elder pastor. Finally, there's the commission. I won't mention any names, but um, there was a this was wonderfully explained. I was trying to give this whole theological definition about what we're doing today, and a lovely saint, precious saint in our church, summed it up in just a couple words. She said, um, "Here at CV, oh, she said um, that Pastor Luke has passed his examination period, and that's why we're here today." Pastor Luke was not ordained prior to coming to CVBC, so this is why we're having this ceremony today. Luke was recently ordained by NACM, which is the National Association of Christian Ministers, which is uh, whom uh, I, I was ordained by them back in 2013. Now as a congregation we have the opportunity to show our affection for Pastor Luke. Our appreciation that God has brought him to us and affirm his ordination at the church level. Now, the modern definition of ordination is the investiture of clergy or the act of granting pastoral authority. Usually, We think of an ordination service as a ceremony in which someone is commissioned or appointed to a position within a church. Often the ceremony involves the laying on of hands. However, the biblical definition is a little bit different. The word ordain in the Bible refers to a setting in place or designation. For example, Joseph was ordained as a ruler of Egypt. That's in Acts 7.10. The steward in Jesus' parable was ordained to oversee a household, Matthew 24.45. Deacons were ordained in each city in Crete, Titus 1.5. In none of these cases is the mode of ordination specified, nor is any ceremony detailed. The ordinations are simply appointments. Acts 13, though, includes a great example of an elder pastor appointment. And it goes, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia. Well from this passage we can note some key facts. First, it is God himself who calls the men to the ministry and qualifies them with gifts. Second, the members of the church recognize God's clear leading and embrace it. Third, With prayer and fasting, the church lays hands on Paul and Barnabas to demonstrate their commissioning act. And then fourth, God works through the church as both the church and the spirit are said to send the missionaries. Paul regularly ordained pastors for the churches he planted. He and Barnabas directed the appointment or ordination of elders in each church. In Galatia, uh, each church in Galatia, see that in Acts fourteen twenty-three. He also instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town on Crete, which was an island. Titus himself was ordained earlier, when he was chosen by the churches. Now, in the above passages, the ordination of elders involves the whole congregation, not just the apostles. The Greek word used in 2 Corinthians 8.19 for Titus' appointment and in Acts 14.23 for the choosing of the Galatian elders means to stretch forth hands. It was a word normally used for the act of voting in the Athenian legislature. Thus, the ordination of church leaders involved a general consensus of the church, like we are here today, if not an official vote. The apostles and the congregations knew whom the Spirit had chosen, and they responded by placing those men in leadership. When God calls and qualifies a man for the ministry, it will be apparent both to that man and also to the rest of the church. The would-be pastor will meet the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16, and Titus 1, five through 9, and he will possess a consuming desire to preach. 1 Corinthians 9:16. It is the duty of the church elders, together with the congregation, to recognize and accept the calling. After that, a formal commissioning ceremony, an ordination service, is appropriate, but not mandatory. The ordination, and this is very important, the ordination ceremony itself does not confer any special magical power on the person being ordained. It simply gives public recognition of God's choice of leadership. At this time, I would like to have Pastor Luke and Brother Justin join me up here on the platform. And also, I'd like to ask Kathy, Sharon, Kayla, and Gina to come forward to the front, that side. And uh, while we're praying up here out loud, the ladies will be praying silently for, um, oh yeah, I said that side, but yeah, that side. The other left, or it could be your right. Um, Ladies will be praying silently uh, at this point. Brother Justin, will you please put your hand on Luke's shoulder? With the following prayer, Luke is officially ordained. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in what you have done in the life of Luke his being ordained today.